Please be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 93. I will also take off my mask for you. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 93. And as you're turning there, just to give a little scriptural context, the Psalms are typically broken into five books, and so Psalm 93 falls within the third book or third segment of the Psalms, and it typically answers one of the questions of the psalmist and the people of Israel, Israel, which is, God, you've made promises to David. Where are the answers to that promise? God, you've promised a descendant of David to reign and redeem. Where is that redeemer? So look now at Psalm 93 as we read together. In light of the psalmist's words, uh, we'll read and then we'll pray for the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts. Psalm 93 reads, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we bow before you, your majesty and your kingship. We bow before all that you are. We bow before your wisdom. We also bow before you in light of your mercy and compassion and grace by which you call us. God, I pray by the Holy Spirit from this passage of Scripture, you would teach us about Jesus and point us to him by the work of the Spirit. God, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts. I pray that you would enlighten our minds in a way that leads us to live holy and obedient lives to you and join all that you've called us to be as your created beings, but also as your sons adopted and made into your family. God, I pray that you would make us wise by your holy word at this time, in Christ's name, amen. So as we look at Psalm 93, I want you to think about it this way. The first three words of the psalm start out this way, the Lord reigns. And one commentator has gone as far to say that these three words at the beginning of Psalm 93 encapsulate the history of the entirety of humanity. In three words, the Lord reigns. As we look at the Lord reigning, I want you to see that the Lord reigns over every trial and every season of your life. Again, the Lord reigns over every trial and every season of your life. As we look at this, I want you to see that when the Lord reigns, he reigns at least in three ways. The Lord reigns in majesty, the Lord reigns eternally, and the Lord reigns in holiness. And so as we look at this, before we get into what it means for the Lord to reign in majesty, I want you to see what it means for the word, the Lord reigns, what that implies. And when it says that the Lord reigns, I want you to think about it like this. If you're at a holiday Christmas party, maybe a corporate Christmas party, and you're starting to meet people that you haven't met before, the natural question that comes up is, what do you do? It's a pretty common question, right? When someone asks you, what do you do? What would they, what would they be able to guess is your profession based on your answer? So say someone asked me that question, Randon, what do you do? And I said, oh, I deliver milk. They might guess, oh, Randon, you're a milkman. Or if they say, Randon, what do you do? And I say, oh, I work on cars. Well, Randon, you must be a mechanic. Randon, what do you do? I, I instruct young children. Oh, you must be a school teacher. Well, what if the answer to that question was, I reign over a kingdom? The natural answer would be, oh, you're a king. You're a ruler. You reign. 
So this idea that the Lord and his reigning are synonymous with each other. They're inseparably tied to each other. And so when we look at the Lord reigning, you have to look at it in that way, that the fact that God is a Lord implies that he reigns, that he has rulership, that he has authority over his kingdom. And so when we look at it in light of that, look at verse 1. It says that the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. What does it mean that the Lord is robed in majesty? Well, how do you know that a king is a king? One of the ways that you know a king is a king is by what he wears. A royal robe, colored in royal purple, royal red, threads of gold and threads of silver, a royal crown encrusted with jewels, a sword that glistens as the sun hits it. These are the indications of kingship, of authority. And whenever it says that the Lord is robed, we know that God the Father is spirit. You read your confession, it says the Lord is spirit, right? And it says that the Lord is robed in majesty. So how do we see an invisible God? We see him in the way that he displays himself to us. We see his majesty in creation. We see his majesty in the display of the world that he has made. So think of the mountains. How high are the mountains? How many men, it's their greatest feat in life to scale the highest mountain in the world. And the Lord at a whisper can move it from here to there. How great of a feat is it that men plumb the depths of the oceans, seeking to go deeper, and yet they've never explored the full depths of the oceans and the seas that God has made, and he can hold the entirety of all the waters in the world in the cup of his hand. That is how majestic God is, and he displays it to us in his creation. But more than that, we see that the majesty of God is displayed in the wisdom and the beauty of the word that he has written. When you read the Holy Scriptures, you see that they are unified, that they are beautiful, that they cut to the quick of our heart as we are convicted about who we are and who God is. The Bible is the holy decree of God going out to us in power, in the power of the Spirit, and the wisdom of God to instruct us and to show us both His majesty as God, but also His understanding of us as our Creator. But when you look at this, I want you to see that God has this majesty, this eternal majesty, this almighty power. And whenever we look at it, think about yourself. Have you ever been guilty of desiring this power and majesty and recognition and authority and privilege for yourself, even at the expense of God's majesty and privilege and authority? Have you ever sought to elevate yourself above the status of God so you would get what God deserves? I think every man and every woman are guilty of desiring things that only belong to God. Then we think about the gospel, and we think about what Christ accomplished, especially in this season, the Christmas season. And Christ took his majesty. All the beauty of the world should be giving praise to God. And Christ took all due recognition of his godliness, of his majesty, of his power, of his authority. And he set aside all recognition of that to take on flesh and become humiliated as one of us. To bear our sins. The book of Isaiah says that Jesus was beaten and stricken so much that he was beyond being recognizable as a man. That he bled and he suffered. And when you think about that, you have to ask, was Jesus receiving the due recognition that he deserved in that moment? By no means. Yet we know that Jesus did that for a purpose. Why would Jesus, from on high, eternally with God, eternally with God the Father, eternally with God the Holy Spirit, set aside all of the majesty of heaven, all of the majesty that he's due to be beaten and stricken and afflicted and bleed and even die. Because we needed him to do that for us when we couldn't even recognize that we needed that from him. And it says that he died for us while we were still sinners. 
And when the Bible says that he died for us while we were still sinners, it means that we didn't even know that we needed to call out for his help. And he said, if I don't go down there, they'll never be able to praise my majesty. They'll never be able to praise my name. So I'm going to take the initiative and go to earth and take on flesh. And this is what it means that Jesus is majestic. You see, because after he died, he was resurrected, and he conquered death, and he went to heaven. And whenever he did this and he accomplished this, we're now able to recognize him as he calls us by the Spirit and praise him. And that's something we'll get to enjoy forever. The book of Isaiah in uh, chapter 6 says that when Isaiah was having a vision of God, it says that he saw a vision, and there is the train of the robe of the king. The train of the robe of God is filling the temple. And in the times of the Old Testament, the train of the robe of God is indicative, the length of the train of the robe of God is indicative of the degree of the majesty of the king. And in the vision of Isaiah, it says that the train of the robe of God in the vision of Isaiah was so long that it was flowing out, that it was pouring out of the temple of God. That is how much majesty God has, that the temple itself that Isaiah had the vision of God in couldn't even contain the full majesty of God. There is no moment in life when we'll ever fully comprehend the full majesty of God. That's how majestic he is. We will always be in awe and wonder and enjoyment of how majestic, how royal, how regal God is. And that demands a response from him or from us. That demands that we respond in faith and submission and obedience, blown away by the beauty of God in light of the fact that Jesus won us the privilege and ability to recognize that majesty and beauty. Look at verse 2. It says, your throne is established from of old. When you think about the word throne, and it says your throne is established from of old. Another way of thinking about a throne is thinking about kingship, thinking about rulership. You associate the throne, the seat of power, the seat of authority with the king who sits on it. So when it says your throne is established from of old, it's talking about the reign of God. That thing that is integral to who God is as a Lord. And so when you look at it and it says that your throne is established from of old, you have to ask, how was the throne established? Well, the throne always existed. God always reigned. But you think about whenever it says that your throne is established from old and you are from everlasting and the world is established, this this concreteness to the reign of God and the concreteness of what he establishes is existing within that word established. And when it says that, that the world was established, it's saying that it's established by what? By the word of God's power. It's established by the authority of God that emanates from his throne, that emanates from his being. And so as the world is established, it says that it will never be moved. Why will the world never be moved? Because God, with all authority and all majesty and all power, has spoken it so. You see, the, the way that you measure the authority and the majesty and the power of a ruler and of a king is whether what he commands is actually carried out. So if a king says, go get me a cup of water, go get me a glass of wine, go get me a feast, go bring this person to me, if he commands it and it doesn't happen, you would assume that that king doesn't have much authority, doesn't have much power. But if a king says that we need to get the armies ready, get them at the gate, and they're there instantaneously. You see the authority of that king over all of his armies, assembling them for whatever cause he assigns them to. This is the authority with which God created the world. You think back to Genesis 1. And whenever you think about Genesis 1, it says, the Lord said, let there be, and it was. The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. The Lord said, let there be land, and there was land. Let there be animals, and there were animals. 
every time the Lord speaks, what he speaks comes to pass. But now we think of this in light of Christ and the calling of the Holy Spirit and the calling of you to salvation with the same authority that God says, let the world be established and it will never be moved. It's the same solidarity, the same concreteness with which God calls you and calls your soul and calls you to redemption and calls you into the family of God and calls you to worship his majesty. It's an unfailing calling, an unfailing establishing of you and the faith. And it doesn't mean that we don't waver as sinners, as created beings, and it doesn't mean that we don't doubt the Lord and all that he is, but it does mean that what God calls you to, he makes sure, and he brings to its fullness and its full fruition. And what that means for us is that when God calls you and he says, Mike, I call you, and John, I call you, and Sarah, I call you to be saved and to believe in Christ and to understand what he accomplished, it means that God is saying, I am securing you at this moment that I call you now and forever into the kingdom of God. Now and forever into the victory that Christ has accomplished whenever he gave away his majesty for a season and he suffered and he died. That is what Christ accomplished. And we're called to praise him for that. And it's the joy of Christians to say how wonderful it is that the Lord called me and secured me when I didn't even know that I needed him. How gracious and merciful and compassionate is God that he does this work that we need him to do. And we look at this and we say that the Lord is majestic. But was the Lord always majestic? Has the Lord always existed in majesty? Another way of asking it is, was there ever a time when God was not majestic? The answer is no. The answer is that God has always been majestic. If you look at your Bible, you'll see in verse 2, it says your throne is established from of old. I have a professor who would call that creation language. It's supposed to take you back to Genesis in your mind and in your heart and in reference to the scriptures. But even beyond that, you see, because the existence of God and his authority and his reign actually existed before the creation of the world. When you read Genesis 1-1, the very beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. The Bible presupposes, it assumes, that God existed before he created everything that we know. So what that means is that God's reign and his majesty and his authority existed before we even existed to recognize it. And so when God made us, he made us for the purpose of recognizing and praising him for all the glory that he's due. So you think about your Westminster Catechism, and you think about the Confession, and you think, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever? Well, God built it into us to enjoy what was always true about him before we even existed. How wonderful it is that God makes creatures like us, so small and insignificant, able to participate and enjoy something that has been eternally true and will be eternally true. So we know that God reigned before the world was created and he reigns presently and he'll reign in the future. And so much and so solidly as God secures our salvation, we'll enjoy that eternal reign of majestic God forever. And so now you start to see verses one and two tying together. God created and God's majestic and God calls us and God saves us. And then as long as he reigns and as long as he saved us, that's how long we'll praise him and that's how long we'll enjoy him and it's forever. Who could comprehend the foreverness of enjoying the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of God and the grace and the blood of Christ? And that's why we come together and that's why we praise the Lord for all that he's given us, though we didn't deserve it. If you were to go to Proverbs chapter 8, you would see that the Proverbs talk about wisdom and it, it gives this, this 
this hinting towards Lady Wisdom as personifying, many people say, Christ and pointing towards Christ. And it says that wisdom was, was with God in the acts of old, in his first of his acts of old. And it also says that God, whenever he was establishing the world, and it goes back to creation references, and it says that Christ was with God in the beginning. You go to Proverbs chapter 8, and it just talks about how, how far back God goes and who he is, that at some point in his eternal existence, he decided to stop and make the world that we live in and stop and make us. Why did God choose to make us in his eternal existence somewhere along the line? He decided to stop and say, I'm going to make the world. What changed that caused God to make the world? Well, nothing causes God to do anything. God is God. God causes other things to happen. So it was God's free will. It was his uh, ruling authority that he was deciding to designate the creation of the world and make us in it. He wasn't required to do it. But as you think about the fact that God created the world and he did it in wisdom and Christ and the Holy Spirit were with him from all eternity, you have to ask, whenever you think about it, did God know that we were going to need Christ whenever he created the world? Absolutely. And you think about the fact that God not only knew that, but he decided to make the world in spite of the fact that he knew that we were going to sin and need him. And Christ, whenever he agreed to come down and take on flesh and die for our sins, he knew that all that he was agreeing to. Yet here we are, enjoying all the freeness of the gifts of grace that God has permitted us to enjoy. Whenever you look at this, we said, well, was God always majestic? We're really getting into the eternality of God, and that's the second point I said we were going to look at. So God is majestic, and he's reigned forever. And so we see that God is majestic and that he reigns for all time. But look at verse 3. It says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. There's this crescendo, this building, this accumulation and unifying of the opposition against the psalmist, of this opposition against the believer, of this opposition against the church. And the natural question as we're living the Christian life is, is God still reigning whenever we face suffering? Is God still reigning when the church is persecuted? You see, the psalms were created and given to us that way we would know how to live the Christian life. And so when we look at the Psalms and we see what they're saying, look at what the psalmist does. He's saying there's real suffering. I think each of you would agree that there's suffering in your life, that there's suffering in the world, that there's suffering specifically against the church. And we have to ask, is God still reigning when that suffering is happening? Well, the answer is yes. But look at what the psalmist does. He's setting an example for us. In verse 3, he says, "The, uh, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. He's taking his trials and his sufferings to God and saying, God, you are the God who reigns. I'm going to take that which I am unable to overcome and bring it to you and ask you to win this battle for me. Ask you to see me through these trials. And so when we look at it, it says, O Lord. And as the psalmist takes his suffering to God, he's not taking it to God in light of some theoretical suffering. It's not like he's contemplating whether he's really where he should be in life, and that's causing him some angst or him in, some anxiety. It's very possible that this is a very real affliction, a war, a battle, a plague, family turmoil, tensions. And you think about this, and what might this be in our day? What kind of suffering might this look like? This might look like the loss of a spouse. This might look like a cancer that you get a prognosis of. This might look like 
uh, a miscarriage. This might look like the sickness of a child. This might look like difficulty in your marriage. This might look like a lost child gone astray from the church, gone astray from belief. Real pain, real suffering. And it's in light of that kind of suffering that the psalmist says we need to turn to the Lord. And it's interesting to see that it says the floods have lifted up their voice as if there's a direction to their crying out against the psalmist. And the way that the psalm responds to this kind of suffering in verse 4, it says, mightier than the thunders of many waters. So not just one suffering, not just a few sufferings, but the gathering together of all the sufferings in the world, the gathering together of all the forces opposed to God and opposed to his people and opposed to his church, ultimately answer to God. So you think about the trials that you're in and the sufferings that you're facing, and you would learn and see that, that even the worst thing that you will ever face is accountable to God and his reign that he establishes over all of the world and all that he says is going to come to pass. Whenever we look at the floods, it says that the Lord on high is mighty in verse 4. So this is the God that the psalmist is taking his problems to. It's the Lord on high. It's not, it's not just a God that's contemplated. It's not just some random divine being. It's not just some abstract viewing of some greater power in the universe. It is the God of the Bible. But the Bible also teaches us that there's only one way to have access to this God who can answer you from the floods and trials and the sufferings of the world. And the only way to have access to the most high God, the God on high, is through Christ. And this is why it is essential to have faith in Christ and to be one to God in Christ and in Christ alone. Because there's no other way to have access to Lord God on high whenever you are facing trials and temptations and sicknesses and death and everything that is involved in life. The only solution is to go to the Lord on high. But the only way to have access to the throne room of God and to take your petitions to him is by the blood of Christ who won us that privilege and that access. Jesus said that there's no other way to the Father except through him. When you look at verse 5, it talks about the decrees of God. And it says, God, your decrees are very trustworthy. And so we think about the decrees of God, and the decrees of God do include that Christ is the only way to God, but it also talks about the character of God as he lays out his law to his people so they would know how to live the Christian life and live it in a way pleasing to him. But when it says that the decrees or the testimonies or the statutes of God are very trustworthy, we have to think about the nature and the character of the decrees of God. You see, typically a law reflects the character of the lawmaker. So you might think about like an old Western movie, and you might think about the idea that like when a sheriff comes to town and he says, there's a new sheriff in town, that implies that there's a shift of power, a shift of enforcing of the nature and the character of the laws for the good of the people in the town. And when you think about that, in the same way we see in the Bible, there are different rules and reigns of different kings and different pagan kings. So you think about Pharaoh in the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, and eventually one of the Pharaoh's assigns for all of the children, of the male children of the Jew, to be killed. That reflects the character and the nature of the Pharaoh who's opposed to God. It shows the evil and the heinousness of that Pharaoh at that time. But compare that to the laws of God. Like one of the Ten Commandments, which says, Thou shalt not steal. And it not only shows us that there's equity and justice and fairness to God, and that there's industry expected from God, and that he enables us to do that, but it also shows us that God is a generous God, 
that God is a gracious and providing God. God is a God who will give us what we need as we obey him. And that's beautiful, and that is the contrast between the nature of evil kings and the nature of our righteous and good and perfect God, our righteous, awesome Savior who reigns forever. And so you think back to the eternality, the eternal reign of Jesus Christ on high. As long as he sits on the throne, that's how long we will enjoy the goodness of the character of God and the outworking of all of his laws in our life. And so we look at this and we say that, okay, God reigns eternally. But something that we can't do is that we can't diminish the transcendence and the highness and the holiness of God. We can't diminish that to try and gain a proximity or a closeness to God. We can't assume that because God does come intimately and personally into our lives that that diminishes his transcendence. Instead, we need to hold them in equal tension or we need to see them working together that God is both high and he condescends into close relationship with us. And so this God on high who reigns over everything and is above all and is overseeing the outworking of your life and all that he's set before you to walk through, all the good works he's prepared for you to live out as a testimony to who he is, while God on high has ordered your life, he's also intimately walking with you through it, answering you out of your sufferings and allowing new sufferings to teach you more about how to be Christ-like how to be lowly, how to be gentle. So that way we might be prepared to exist eternally in the kingdom of God. So we said that God reigns majestically and he reigns eternally, but lastly, God reigns in holiness. When you look at verse five, it reads this way. It says, your decrees are very trustworthy, and then continues, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits the house of God. So the Bible says that holiness befits the house of God. But the Bible says elsewhere that men essentially aren't holy. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray. It says that we sin. It says that we've fallen short of the standard of God. From our very birth until the day that Christ redeems us, it says that we've fallen short. It says that no one seeks good. No, not one. No one does good. No one is righteous. So if the Bible says that holiness befits the house of heaven, but we're not holy, do we befit the house of heaven? By our own nature? No. So what is man to do to be able to enter the presence of God in heaven? How does man go from being unholy to being made holy? We come back to Christ again, the majestic Christ who set aside his majesty, who was reigning and being praised by all of his other creation, by the angels and all that was in heaven. And whenever God was on high, Christ said, I'm going to set that aside so that way man might be made holy that he might be recaptured into my reign, that his heart might beat once again so he would know how to praise me and be able to exist in heaven eternally with me. It's only by the blood of Christ that we're made holy. First, Christ dies for us and his blood is applied to us by the work of the Spirit. And whenever we are justified, whenever we're made to stand right and acceptable before God again, only by the work of Christ, then and only then do we begin to be made holy in preparation for existing eternally in the holy presence of God. So you think about the fact whenever <clears throat> Jesus is talking to the disciples and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, what is the place like that Jesus is going to prepare for the disciples that he's speaking to? He's going to prepare a room, a place for them, a seat at the dinner table in a holy household, in a perfectly unblemished, unmarred, undisrupted household, one that fully recognizes in some senses to the degree that man can, uh, uh, it fully recognizes the holiness of God 
and gives praise to him for his eternal existence, for his majesty, and it delights in it. And there's not a single one of us in this room that perfectly delights in the holiness and the reign of God because there are still things in our heart that we desire that God doesn't desire for us. And what the Bible says is from the moment Christ claims you, those things are being pulled away from your heart little by little until you can more and more and more fully enjoy what it means to be in the holy presence of God and to enjoy living a holy life because it reflects the God whose image we bear. But you might ask, well, why can't God just let a little bit of sin slide? Why can't God just allow a little bit of sin in heaven? Think about it this way. Most of you went to school, and there was probably a dean's list or an honor, an honor roll. And typically, the standard for being on the dean's list is perfect straight A grades. So remember, we said that the law often reflects the lawmaker. So the dean's list reflects the character of the dean who it represents, Right? So the dean typically says, I like students who get good grades. Well, think about it this way. What does it say about the dean and the dean's list if someone is allowed onto the dean's list who has all Fs? If that person is allowed onto the dean's list with a less than perfect report card, then it's saying that the dean himself doesn't value what the dean's list would otherwise represent. It diminishes the value, and it diminishes the value for all those who are listed on the dean's list. But here's the thing, regarding holiness and regarding our faith, none of us qualify to be on God's dean's list. Not by the works that we do, not by the life that we live, not by the charity that we give, not by how much we tithe, not by how many times we volunteer at the soup kitchen, not by how much we can provide uh, housewives to our family. None of that qualifies us for heaven. But there was one who got a perfect grade. There was one who qualifies for the dean's list, and that's Christ. And what Christ says, Christ says is, I will give you credit for that which I have done, and I will take your place. Christ says, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the detentions. I'll take the extra study halls. I'll take all the discipline that's due you for your failing, and you can get your name on the dean's list because I accomplished it, because someone had to do it. Because otherwise there would be no deans. Otherwise there would be no enjoying God. And so what happens is, all of a sudden you see your name on the deans list because of what Christ has done. You see your name listed with the saved because of what Christ has done. And you know that it doesn't belong there. But Christ has all authority. He has all majesty. And what he commands is carried out. So when Christ says that your name is on the deans list, it's there. And so that's wonderful because then you see other people who don't enjoy the household of God. They don't enjoy the forgiveness of sins. But you know that you didn't enjoy those things either. Yet you're getting to enjoy all the privileges of being a son of God. And you look at that person and you say, I know a way that you can be in the household of God when you die. I know a way that you can enjoy fellowship with true Christians now. And it's by the work of Christ. It's by the value of his blood. And you take that solution to them. And it is wonderful to see the blood of Christ applied to a new believer's life and see the changes that they make. Not because it wins them favor with God, but because it's an outflow of them understanding of how humbled they have to be in the presence of a holy, perfect God who they would otherwise never enjoy the presence of. If you turn to Psalm 84 in your Bible and you look at what this looks like, in verse 1 of Psalm 84, it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! 
And in verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And again in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And the tents of wickedness are the mansions of the people of the time of the psalmist. He's saying that I would rather have what's stored up for me in heaven and stored up for me in the future. I would rather be a servant in the house of God. I would rather be of the lowliest position that I can imagine in the household of God than have all the riches and all the recognition and all of my own self-majesty now. He's saying I'll live humble now and enjoy getting to enjoy the holiness of God in heaven in the future. So we started out looking at this text today saying that, that we were at a party and people would ask you, what do you do? And you answer, oh, I deliver milk. Oh, you're a milkman. Oh, I work on cars. Oh, you're a mechanic. Oh, I teach young children. Oh, you're a teacher. What if your answer to that question was, I serve the God who reigns? Would the person who's speaking with you understand that you are a servant of the God who has called you who has established you as surely as the world is established, that you've been called and are a servant of a majestic God, not a foreign, far, faraway deity, but a close, intimate, caring, loving, merciful, compassionate God, one who sent his own son to die for you. Would that be con conveyed, would that be construed in all that you explain to them? And even more than that, would your life reflect the truth of that statement? Would the life that you live the way that you treat your spouse, the way that you raise your kids, the time that you spend in the word of God, would that show that you are truly a servant of God, that your name is really on the dean's list, that it's really permanently there? And would someone who's watching you over five years and 10 years and 20 years see that you are slowly but surely, even through trials, even through temptations, being carried forward in your belief and being carried forward into new holiness and preparation for heaven? That's the challenge for the Christian life. Are we being made holy like God is holy, like he's called us to be? Because the Bible says without holiness, we cannot enter heaven. But God provides what he requires, and he's provided it in Christ, and the Holy Spirit works this out in us. So I pray that you would enjoy that God is making us holy so we can enjoy it. And we're all going to see each other in heaven for those of us who are saved, and we're going to look at each other and say, I can't believe God did this thing. I can't believe he accomplished this work. As we look back at the psalm, I just want you to be encouraged as uh, you go through different trials and temptations and sufferings. That The Bible instructs us on how to get through these, but he also provides believers in this church that we might be bolstered in the faith until the day that God calls us into glory, into heaven. And so, have hope, Christian, that you're being made holy until the day of glory to enjoy the full benefits of all that Christ has purchased for us. Please pray with me. Father, we bow before you as a majestic God, and we bow before you as an eternal God and as a holy God. And Lord, I pray that you would make this congregation one that is more and more holy every week, every day. And Lord, there is sin in our hearts that we trust you to remove from us, that we trust you to wash away with the blood of Christ and the sanctification accomplished by the Spirit. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue in the coming year to expand the body of these believers, that you would continue to let the, the gospel that is within their hearts, that you would let the work of Christ shine so brightly in the community of Lee Summit and the workplaces of the people who attend here, 
that they would ask about the Christ who died and rose and reigns eternally, that they might also have life. Lord, we trust you to continue your work in the Spirit until the day that we join and sing your praises eternally. Make us holy, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.